<laughs> Sometimes I even sing. I know. We got a petition. For or against? Based on the sound, they think we're torturing you in here. <laughs> Sit down, Mr. Garibaldi. You know, a true artist is never appreciated in his own time. Or his own cell block. <laughs> what I can follow, yeah. I just wish there were a translated version I could read. <gasps> Sacrilege. It must be read in the mother tongue or not at all. They'll start making arrests within the next two months. The lists have already been drawn up. What can we do to help? Earth needs all the information we can give her. Any source is acceptable. To make it easier for sources to come forward, we're going to allow them to give us information anonymously. We're authorized to look into past history, social contacts, party affiliations, to conduct email and vid surveillance of Babcom and Stellarcom transmissions. To... Whoa, whoa, wait. Just how far does this go, anyway? Do we start suspecting everybody? No, of course not. Anyone in the Night Watch is automatically recognized as working in the best interests of Earth. As for the other officers, well, we won't look at them unless we detect any unusual activity on their part. In that case, may I ask a question? Does anyone in this room know where the captain is? This is the Earth Alliance destroyer Agamemnon to unidentified vessel. Oh, hell. We have recorded an attack in this sector. You will surrender your vessel and prepare to be boarded. An evil alien attack. It's Sheridan against Earth. Our own ships will be sent in to destroy you. Is it strategy or suicide? On an all-new... Get us out of here! Babylon 5. You have transmissions holding. Patch incoming signal. Full audio and video decode. Purple files accessed. What you are about to see has never been shown to anyone outside the break house. podcast land welcome to gray 17 a babylon 5 podcast a part of the front row network and npr illinois community voices we are a group of first ones watching babylon 5 for the umpteenth time and newbies watching babylon 5 for the first time i'm scott and with me is justin mike kevin and nicole and we have arrived to almost midway through season three with messages from Earth. So we are going to talk about messages from Earth with our newbies, uh, without spoilers for anything that comes up next. And then we will get their questions and predictions of what they think is going to happen next and what they're wondering what's going to happen next. We will eject them out the airlock. And then those of us who have watched the entire series will answer those questions and predictions and let them listen to it about two years from now. I'm giving you all the rundown because uh, we're to a point in this season where I think we're going to start getting some new listeners every episode so welcome to our new folks we really do appreciate you joining us and please remember to like subscribe follow if you're watching on youtube click that notify button if you're listening on the podcast version please be sure to subscribe because based on my analytics 
only about half of you are subscribed to the show. You all come back every week and listen to it, but you're still not subscribed. So click that little button for me. Along with that, if you can, please leave a review. If you can leave an Apple iTunes review, that helps us out greatly. And we actually had one come in a few days ago that I'm gonna read right now. This comes from Lowrider, like watching for the first time. What a great idea for a podcast, bringing together a group of longtime fans and people who haven't seen it, some of whom aren't even necessarily fans of the genre. It's wonderful to see how good writing can transcend the huge transformation TV shows have undergone on since the show originally aired. It's also fun to see what things haven't aged well and why. Not only is this a must listen for new and old fans of the show, but it's also a useful listen for anyone interested in the craft of storytelling. Thanks, Lowrider. We really do appreciate it. You can also join our social media channels. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We have some really good conversations going on both Twitter and Facebook, and you can join in those conversations that way. And then also, if you can go one step further and help us a lot more, you can join our Patreon. And as a Patreon member, regardless of the level, you do get access to our Discord channel where we have channels for both non-spoiler talk and spoiler talk for those who want to talk about everything else B5 that the newbies can't see yet. Along with that, our highest level of our Patreon is our Grey Council. And thank you very much to our producers in the Grey Council. They are listed down below. We really do appreciate your support. Let's go ahead and start talking about messages from Earth. Let's do a synopsis, and I believe Kevin has our synopsis for tonight. As the Senate continues to investigate President Clark, an archaeologist brings news of a development back home that forces Sheridan to act against the Earth government. The Night Watch tightens its grip on the civilian population. Now we're going to go ahead and talk to our newbies first about their first impressions. So let's go to Justin first. First impressions on messages from Earth. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is a good Justin episode, man. I really actually enjoyed uh, watching Sheridan's first act of rebellion against Earth and the Clark regime. And um, yeah, uh, fuck Nightwatch, man. This is really getting to some shitty territory with me with these guys. I thought Cole chasing after uh, Ivanova was quite entertaining. I'm sure we'll get into more of that a little bit later. I had some questions about Minbari beds for one later on. And then two, kind of enjoyed Delenn and Sheridan's uh, my endless love scene uh, that we got into a little bit uh, during that. But overall, good episode, good kind of leeway into kind of some things that we've maybe had suspected about the shadows at one point and some new stuff that we learned along the way. So I look forward to our discussion later. It's going to be fun. Thank you, Justin. Let's go to Emily for her first impressions. It was a good episode. I did like it. There's kind of a lot going on, and I might need some confirmation on some timeline stuff to make sure I have everything in order later after we do this. I was very interested to see that interterry, interplanetary, was it Explorations or the IE organization? Expeditions. Interplanetary Expeditions. Yeah, I just labeled it IE. Um, Was very interested to see that they're popping up yet again with some fuckery. I knew they weren't to be trusted. You were all like, oh, you have trust issues and there's reasons. Obviously, they are super duper smarmy and shady. Nicole, first impressions. There was a lot going on. Um, There was a lot of different things happening throughout. I thought it was kind of interesting how we saw Jakar and Garibaldi in the beginning and had that moment of just kind of highlighting their newfound friendship. But that was literally all we saw the whole episode. So that that was kind of weird. But I guess it didn't really play into what was going on. I did... 
when that lady was telling the story about the spider ships and Garibaldi basically saw the same thing. I can't believe this is the first time we heard about that. So that was kind of crazy to me, like her telling that story. I should have recorded it because I was like, damn. Oh, no. Oh, my God. So like that was her whole story. And that whole thing was crazy. I think it's cool that they're going to take her to Minbar and kind of help her and keep her safe. And then let's see. Sheridan kind of like cowboyed up in this episode a little bit. I mean, he basically had everything planned. He had everything covered. He like laid everything out on the line before he went and did this mission. So that was kind of badass. I thought I also enjoyed the Dylan and Sheridan moments that they had. That was very sweet. Um, but yeah, other than that, I really thought it was good. Um, I enjoyed the whole episode. I think that this episode kind of set a lot of things in motion that we'll discuss a little bit later throughout the episode and in questions and predictions. But I kind of got the vibe that this episode was a turning point episode. I could be wrong, but I'm sure I'll find out two years from now and be on the rim. But I do feel like this episode kind of changed the gears or kind of sped things along like shit's gonna escalate now after this episode now we'll go ahead and go to our first ones who have watched the whole show and get their first impressions mike first impressions i guess i'll be somewhat contrary opinion i didn't i didn't dislike this episode by any it was a good episode but it's not my favorite um most of what i enjoyed about this episode happened really in the very beginning um the the scene between garibaldi and jakar i love and then uh the, the story, the setup for the episode of the uh, runaway IPX scientist relaying her her details to the uh, to the secret council. Um, I really enjoyed, and then everything after that for me was kind of bad. That's overall how I feel about. It. Okay, you can send your comments to Mike down in the comment section below. He would love to hear how he's wrong, Kevin. First impressions. That is certainly a hot take, Mike, but we Just appreciate like my your opinion, perspective. Man. <laughs> no, no, we appreciate your perspective. <laughs> the dude um, abides. GMS says this is his favorite episode up until this point of the series. Um, this is a great episode. I'm not sure I would put it quite in that category, but I'm a big fan of Von Armstrong, who played the uh, fairly sinister other security guard, the head of Nightwatch. Um, and I thought Nancy Stafford did a great job uh, as a guest star for the Kirkish character, Dr. Kirkish. Um, this is a great episode. There's a, a lot of shit that happens in it. There's some great personal moments. You know, the the scene with Delenn and, and Sheridan is great. I enjoyed some of the back and forth with Ivanova and Marcus in this one. Uh, certainly the Garibaldi and Dakar scene there's there's some great stuff here but you know shit went down and that doesn't always you know doesn't always happen for at least you know the the more the main arc i'm i'm just glad to be talking about an episode that isn't a bottle episode because uh uh this uh this main storyline is uh the main the main event and yes for those out there we do know the definition of a bottle episode we can call it that even if it's not in the definition i've gotten smacked around several times about what a bottle episode is and i agree with kevin so meh. Uh, so for my first impressions, uh, Mike's wrong. This is one of the best episodes we've seen so far. I don't think it is the best episode we've seen so far. I think there's a couple other ones who that are high up there. But I will say, you know, we talk about the P5 score a lot, which is the Lurker's Guide ranking that was uh, derived back in the 90s when this first came out. And this is the top 20 
episode of the series under the p5 score but i will say there are one two three four five six seven more episodes in season three that get a higher score than this one does including next week so i think we're to nicole's point uh we are definitely off and running and uh shit's hitting the fan which is why we've told you a while now that season three really is where this show gets serialized and you're going to see that a lot as we continue down this road of season three for me i this episode is a lot of payoffs there's a lot of little stuff that's been kind of threaded throughout seasons one two and three that really start paying off we knew garibaldi had a background on mars we knew ipx was doing shady things as emily pointed out with infection and everything else and we've known for a while that the the shadows have more of a plan than we thought they did we heard mr morden talking on earth about how we could potentially use uh the the shadow vessel that was seen by keffer as something to kind of wag the dog and we're starting to see that so there's just so much little payoff here and also it is a, a big turning point for our characters sheridan takes off the ea uh, pen and wears a lovely 90s henley with the four buttons it was great so i i enjoyed this episode a lot let's go ahead and dive in and i justin has been chomping at the bit so justin what do you got not necessarily chomping at the bit i do want to talk about bacon and eggs here for a fucking second so i i think i mentioned this maybe on one episode or two episodes ago you know they're all making a big damn deal about not being able to get bacon and eggs and have to eat this kind of gray sludge every morning um, like they have to. And, you know, I like the shut up and eat it mentality of the military. But in that giant ass station, could they not have planned a goddamn farm? And I don't know if JMS has ever said anything about this, about why, why they can't just have chickens on board why they can't have cows why they can't have pigs like is it's something that five miles long you would think they'd have some kind of livestock available for that they actually talked about that on the show i can't remember the episode it was either it was either takashima or ivanova because they both have their coffee because they're one of the same character in that case so it was like super early on yeah would they be i can't remember when it was it may even been when she was talking to corwin like three episodes ago but um the, the what they basically say is every square inch of hydroponics has to be used for water reclamation and oxygen production because with that many people on the space station they have to use every square inch for that and when you've got you know pigs and chickens you know taking up space and eating the food and shooting methane into the air it really kills the closed system so they've they've, they've said that now do you agree with it or not is up to you but they've said yeah. that every square inch has to be used for hydroponics and oxygen production i still think it's bullshit they've never <laughs> heard of a freezer i mean right. <laughs> well he said fresh eggs and he said you can't get them out here before they spoil Okay, but we also established in this episode that the White Star made the jump to Earth in two days. That's the White Star. It's not used for a milk run or an egg run. <laughs> but, but I'm saying you can get shit. Is the White Star necessarily faster through hyperspace? 
than I don't other know. ships? <laughs> Having not been in hyperspace, I don't know. Mike. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it takes more than two days for eggs to get from a poultry farm to hy in the grocery store. And especially if you don't refrigerate them first, if you have them room temperature, eggs can last a while room temperature. <laughs> we actually, <laughs> I'm feeling deja vu because we yeah. had this very same conversation when Garibaldi was making his uh, his meal. And, oh, uh, that's right. The, uh, <laughs> they, they said in that episode too, because <laughs> I guess JMS knew we'd still be talking about this. They point out that every square inch of usage on a freighter is used for stuff that's not perishable so you can get more stuff in there so you can put a lot more cans of dried what sludge spoo than you can eggs i don't know nicole would you like I mean, to add to the egg comments yeah i mean to me it makes sense that they can't have a farm on there because yeah like how are they gonna they're gonna have to burn the methane off then what happens to the smoke from when you're burning it's all enclosed there's nowhere for that to go not to mention the fact that like say if there's an oxygen dip or something happens with the oxygen the animals may not survive that kind of environment too so for me it makes sense that there isn't like a farm or something there because i i just don't see how that would be feasible if you're in an enclosed space um and they're you know like not to mention waste who's going to pick up the cow shit and where's it going to go what are they going to do with it i mean you know what I mean? there's like a lot that goes into it so for me it's like obviously there wouldn't be a farm so but again i'm not a sci-fi person so i, I don't know maybe it's just logic to me <laughs> There's a whole the bunch door. of uh, there's a whole bunch of brainwashed murderers picking up all the cow shit. I was gonna say there's a whole bunch of people down below they could be making True. jobs for. That's what I was gonna say. And yeah. there's a door on the side of the station you could be throwing cow shit at drawl. <laughs> it's just circling around Epsilon Three. Just a whole lot of cow shit. That's just so that's much about the, the human race. No matter where we go, is. we leave cow shit. Yeah. You could put a lot of methane in space. I don't think it'll be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's and all the human excre- uh, alien excrement just becomes the wetsuit around Babylon oh, Five. My God, Babylon Five has That's a condom of shit. Disgusting. <laughs> it's. And I've space read, itself. I read somewhere that human excrement is a is a really good radiation shield. <laughs> So if there's ever an atomic bomb, you're going to cover yourself in shit and hide in a ditch. Absolutely. Is what you're saying. But that's literally what they did during the Apollo missions. When they went to the bathroom, they vetted that shit into space. Yeah, and Apollo 13, it threw them off course even more. (laughs) (laughs) You know, remember why I said that usually on these big episodes, we get more audience members? Goodbye, audience members. (laughs) We're talking about shit and methane. (laughs) Yeah. Now, you all are talking about the eggs, but real quick, the very next scene where uh marcus is protecting the good doctor we get another roundhouse kick so that was my big thing of that is we had another jump flying roundhouse kick so yeah that I, was I think it counts up to four on the roundhouse yes. kicks. justin you rex quando <laughs> yeah and he walked up on the wall just to come back down and yes, marcus did some moves too that's true i mean I honestly just a comment on that real quick i thought that actually the the terribly way that that whole fight scene was choreographed i rather enjoyed though <laughs> it was fun to watch nunchucks <laughs> yeah that's what i said i said i, I said at one point watching this i'm like who the fuck's got nunchucks like where did those come from I have to say, Justin, you said the terrible way that was choreographed. We talk about directors a little bit on this show. This episode was directed by Mike Vehar, who I believe is probably the best director Babylon 5 has. So I'm just throwing it out there. Maybe he was asleep at the wheel during the stunt day, yeah. but Vehar always does a good job of directing, in my opinion. Yeah, him and Janet, Janet Greek 
you know, you know, it's going to be pretty well done with the two of them, especially. So, and I just have to say, in case he's listening, Mike, my boy, I love your direction. The, the <laughs> ninety, the other ninety percent of the episode was great. Just that fight scene, man. Come on, don't try to dig yourself out of the hole. Yeah, we got <laughs> we got Jesse pissing off every female actor, and you pissing off every director. We're doing great. Back to the Vehar thing, real quick. One of the first podcasts out there uh, for Babylon Five was the Audio Guide to Babylon Five. It came out several years ago, and I unabashedly stole some of the format for Gray Seventeen from them. They would always point out immediately when they start an episode, it's a Vehar episode, and one of the uh, hosts would actually yell Vehar as the start of the episode so they definitely uh they like their very hard too anything else on eggs bacon or roundhouse kick the last thing i was going to say on it is just remember space is one giant deep freezer just saying yeah okay that's a thing he's not wrong <laughs> i mean i'm just here, here I'm just wondering Midwest, if... i put my beer out on the deck sometimes in the winter i can put my <laughs> eggs outside <laughs> your bacon, handle... like you can you can haul a lot of bacon if it's just floating outside your ship that's how we handle all the pies at Thanksgiving. They all get set on the deck every Thanksgiving. Just like, yeah. we don't need refrigerator room. Just stick yeah. it on the deck. It's fine. Come on, JMS, do your research. Oh, really? We're going to go down that road? Oh. And now JMS is going to come for you. Yeah. Well, and, now he's, and, uh, and by the way, did I ever mention that JMS is 68 years old? <laughs> you guys are I'm, really just pissing people stupid. off. <laughs> Hi, JMS. If you're still listening, I don't know why you would be, but hi. Love you. <laughs> He's shaking Our his head symbol. right now. Love you. Call me. Uh, okay. <laughs> so let's get in the episode proper. And uh, we have two plot points, but really the one plot point only comes in halfway through and it's kind of a smaller one. So let's do that one first. And that is Nightwatch and Zach. So let's uh, talk about that. Ooh, Nicole's looking a little feisty. Nicole, what do you got? Who is that blonde asshole, by the way? He's an admiral he's from Starfleet. He's coming into Zach Gallon's room and like, fuck him. He's a Nazi. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't remember him, but he's a prick and I hate his face and I want to punch him in the balls. Um, so... The whole Nightwatch thing is getting fucking ridiculous. Also, by the way, that bitch who ratted out Sheridan, where's the captain? She's done that before in previous episodes. I want to wring that bitch's neck, okay? <laughs> when she said that, I was so mad. I'm like, who the hell is this bitch and who does she think she is? Like, she should get spaced. That's all I'm saying. But uh, that whole, like dialogue when he came into his room or it's oh i thought there was a meeting yeah it's in a half an hour but i wanted to meet with you per privately that scene pissed me off because he was basically like threatening his job and telling him he needs to get to garibaldi and zach allen obviously has his loyalties and they're to garibaldi and to that crew and, the, and he said i'm not gonna do that but also he knows that garibaldi is not trusting him now as much because he's in the night watch you know and i feel like he was kind of trying to get this guy to back off by saying, you know, Garibaldi doesn't trust me like that anymore. Maybe that was his way of trying to get out of having to be a, a spy for them. Yeah, that really, really made me mad. Oh, well, now we've been authorized to go into their emails and do this and do that. Like, and Zach Allen was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is it got to be that deep? Like, is that necessary? And I just feel like he's the only person that wears the Nightwatch badge with a brain and a set of balls because everyone else is just... You 
you know, following suit. And like, I mean, maybe they think they're doing a good thing because they're, you know, whatever. They're clearly brainwashed and gaslit. But like the whole Nightwatch thing is so it's infuriating. And it, I just it's just going to cause nothing but problems. But at the end, like basically saying that he's going to be going for Sheridan, like he's that's going to open up a lot of problems. And I I cannot see that ending well. Justin. Yeah, and I mean, to kind of follow up on what Nicole was saying, um, I really, it's, did anything that happened with Nightwatch during this episode shock me? Absolutely not. Really, what we saw was a natural progression of, hey, we're going to call, we're going to take this, you know, manufactured crisis moment to further erode on people's rights and, you know, justify the reason why we're spying on everybody. And still, I kind of still hold out a little bit of hope for Zach, but he gave away a lot without even trying to, because especially when he, you know, during that one-on-one meeting with, uh, with the, you know, big blonde fucker that Nicole was talking about, um, he, he basically admitted that he knows more than what he's telling Nightwatch and a good way of manipulating people is to one, find your vulnerabilities and two, exploit those vulnerabilities. So basically what this guy did was realize that Zach's relationship with Garibaldi was his big vulnerability because he still feels loyalty to Garibaldi, even, even with the fact that they're kind of on opposite sides of this issue and exploiting that gear, ex- exploiting that vulnerability is then trying to further turn the screw on Zach to use that relationship with Garibaldi to then report on the rest of the senior command staff. Because, and I think I made a mention of it on a previous episode, but I do agree that I think Sheridan's the ultimate goal in terms of the Nightwatch investigations. And the fact that now that they're pushing Zach to get in with the inner circle, I think can either go one of one of two ways is either a Zach's going to comply and screw, try and screw everyone else over or Zach, even looking at the last scene when he's looking down at his armband and you can definitely tell he's starting to regret a lot of decisions. I still hope out for, I still have hope for the fact that Zach will side with the inner circle and start spying on Nightwatch and reporting back to the command staff. But that's my hope. I hope I'm right, but I could be wrong. Emily. I agree with Justin and that I also hope that he doesn't turn against like Sheridan and the rest of them and that he actually acts as an informant for them, you know, and can maybe provide Nightwatch with some false information just to help protect them. And I was happy to see that he's really starting to question it, especially once they announced that they're it's they're now under martial law and he's seeing all these laws that they had in place to help protect people are now essentially gone. And that he's actually questioning, wait, what did I actually, what did I sign up for? And that no one else in the room even seemed to bat an eye. It didn't seem to phase him at all. And he was the lone one who seemed uncomfortable by it. I'm, I'm hoping that means good things for him. I'd be very, very sad if it didn't. Mike. If nothing else, this episode definitely proved why Zach wasn't invited into the inner circle for the conspiracy because 
like right in front of the guy he's having a confrontation with he like turns his back to him and says damn it zach this is why garibaldi doesn't let you in on the secret thing that they're doing and the guy's like hey well what was that and he's like oh, nothing i didn't say anything to that point I, I think zach is just being human there you know he's already just said he's basically lost his friend in garibaldi the guy who promoted him up to basically second in command and now he won't even talk to him because of the night watch band he's having all this ethical back and forth in his mind about what he should and shouldn't do and he just let something slip i don't oh, I get it that. i just it makes him humorously dopey at this point yeah, yeah. well uh, zach allen can be humorously dopey that is true justin one last thing i guess i'll say about the night watch because we all kind of hit the points on how infuriating and annoying and yes stop a lead there becoming but the scene that kind of infuriated me the most was when do we ever get a name for the for the blonde guy no he's he's referred to as security guard one okay well security guard number one to me he's a big old stinky number two but security guard number one the when he's sitting there looking at all the monitors and just relishing on the fact look at them they don't even know that we're watching them doesn't kind of make you feel like a god. And I'm like, okay, Himmler, knock it off. I can't help it but with the Gestapo attitudes because it's it's 100% mirrored. And it's just 100% infuriating to me at the same time. Like, I I can't have enough negative things to say about Nightwatch and the way this is going. And I 100% agree with everything everybody has said about how I just... The fact that it saddens me and scares me at the same time is that it seems like Zach is the only one questioning the ethics of what they're trying to do here. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, gung-ho, let's go, you know, let's go do this and protect Earth. And Zach's like, the fuck are we doing here, guys? Like, it's really disappointing to me that Zach's the only one, but I guess that's the way it is. You know, but I will say we give Londo and Veer a whole lot of crap about how they see the wrong in what they're doing, but they're still doing the wrong in what they're doing. Zach's still wearing the armband. He hasn't taken it off. So after a while, even if you feel torn, I mean, even after a while, even if you feel torn, sooner or later, you're making the decision. You're you have to take responsibility. And this that scene seemed to end where he was about to make a decision. So I'm just hoping he makes a good one. Nicole. My thought is, though, if he does take it off, what the fuck is going to happen to him? They're going to ruin him. I actually had in one of my predictions is I think he's going to turn on Nightwatch and become an informant like you guys had already said. So I think that this is going to be a time for him to make a decision. Do I go along with it? Do I quit or do I help the other side? You know what I mean? And I think that for him, he probably won't quit just because I think the consequences will not be good for him, but I don't think he's going to stay loyal to Nightwatch in any, and not, not like he ever was, but I don't think he's going to participate like they want him to. Let's move into the operation with Sheridan, Dylan, and Lanier on the White Star and everything that leads up to it with the shadows on Mars. Nicole. Before we get into the deep conversation, I just want to make one point of a comment that was kind of funny on the White Star. Uh, Sheridan's like, Lanier, don't hold anything back. And he's like, if I were holding anything back, I would tell you. (laughs) It just, it made me laugh way too much, like way too hard. I don't know why it was so funny, but it it was just such a good Lanier line because I feel like he's unintentionally hilarious. Bill Moomy is a treasure. Full power, give me everything you've got. If I were holding anything back, I would tell you. 
Yeah, it was it, it was a good um, kind of a comedy break in the middle of like an intense situation. Like it was kind of like a nice reprieve for a second until you realize the severity of what's happening. Justin. Actually, one question I have about Bill Mooney real quick before I get into my comment that I was going to make. I have not gone back and listened to the Bill Mooney interview. Are we able to do that yet? We never interviewed Bill Mooney. I sure wish we would, though. Huh. <laughs> I've only been bugging him for a year and a half. Every time he posts on Facebook, I'm like, hey, Bill, I'd love to interview you. So now that Justin has hallucinated that thing, can we use that? Honestly, that, that's, like an alternate, that's like an alternate reality shit there because I could have sworn like early on when we first were getting going, that's one of the first interviews you guys did was with Bill Mooney. Can we change the Mandela effect to the linear effect at this point? Can we do that, please? Yeah, probably. Anywho. Marshall T, oh, Peter, Marshall. and, and uh, Ivanova. Yeah, we okay. interviewed it. We interviewed right. Taylon, even though you didn't know he was Taylon at the time. Yeah. And we interviewed Claudia. We've interviewed Peter. Snap back to reality, to quote the philosopher Eminem. So I just kind of wanted to kind of walk through this damn Mars thing here for a second. So, and kind of wrap, wrap, wrap my brain around this. So they found Fortitude kind of when they were telling the story in the Shadow Council, is I guess what I'll call them. Uh, they found this ship seven years ago, you were saying, Scott, right? So that means before Santiago and Clark were even theoretically around-ish, Clark was in his second term, because remember, we had the election for Clark in season one. I think it was midnight on the firing line. They were having the election. Where so Santiago it... and Clark were elected to their second I'm sorry, term. Santiago, which Clark was his VP. But yes, because remember, okay. um, remember, uh, uh, Ivanova said she probably wouldn't vote for Santiago because his vice president has too many chins. OK, so I mean, but still, we're kind of. The shadows have been around longer than we thought they had been around. Right. And that's one thing that really struck me with this episode, then, is exactly then how long has Psycor been putting this shit together? And the fact that, and, and, and I agree with one thing that Nicole asked earlier on, why now is Garibaldi just being like, hey, I saw one of these murder ships seven years ago and hey i found this little sidecore badge at the scene of the crime and then now all of a sudden then he's dropping this knowledge on everybody so then you know has and, and, and that thing then i guess maybe escalates one thing i kind of question about on some other episode i don't know which one it is i've i've drank and slept since then but is clark a puppet or is clark the med the mastermind and to me this kind of suggests more that clark is a puppet and Stop. Oh, God, Justin, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Scott. What were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, okay, why did Garibaldi take so long to bring this up? And I know, Kevin, you were going to bring some of this up, too. So jump in. Uh, this actually was discussed in a comic book that came out a year earlier than this episode. And the comics were canon. There was a story in a comic book, actually two comic books, where Garibaldi and Keffer go to a Centauri base and they are looking into shadow stuff. And Garibaldi in flashback talks all about what happened here. So if you were reading the comics as they came out, you knew a little bit more of the backstory of this beforehand. And to your point, even if you didn't, that's why Garibaldi didn't bring it up in the show. It's because it was brought up in the comics and he did relay that information to people, including Sheridan in the comic. He did talk about that. Yeah. And infection in the first season, he says something about, you know, the walking out of the Martian desert. And then in another episode, 
um what did you think it was coming of shadows yeah I'm guessing yeah um you know they talk about how sinclair was there so sinclair probably has full knowledge of this this event mm-hmm. and my guess is they decided to keep it very very quiet um because of a number of reasons but the fact that psychor is involved they probably want to shove that down as far as they possibly can into their mind so that it doesn't get seen yeah. we actually talked about this comic for another reason beyond the rim the comic is called silent enemies it's this it's a second of a two-parter and we talked about silent enemies because the last panel of that comic they actually blow up uh, a a building on mars they being garibaldi and sinclair uh because they were doing human experiments into some kind of alien thing but the last panel you find out that one of the people there who was being experimented on was talia winters and the uh garibaldi was uh, not garibaldi jms was a little perturbed <laughs> about this because you can assume that's probably when she got control put into her the comic book was supposed to come out after divided loyalties by about a month in order to like oh here's a little this is what happened to talia because now we know what happened to talia the comic book came out before divided loyalties and james is like god damn it (laughs) Did, did did james write the comic book he was involved in the comics he did not write the comics i don't believe um Actually, yeah, he was premised by J. Michael Straczynski on this one. Writer was Tim DeHaas. Uh, but the other thing, one last thing, Justin, to your point, why didn't Garibaldi bring it up before? Uh, JMS was asked that as well, and he said, um, I believe Sheridan wasn't shown the badge in the comic, the Psychor badge, but Sheridan was informed. And he said, and Garibaldi's always cautious about what he says in front of others. So he just never brought it up. Gotcha. But yeah, there's a lot of that whole that whole timeline of when all of that stuff went down and the fact like now I'm very, very curious how long EarthGov and Morden have been working together. A while. Nicole. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you know, we knew that obviously from that one episode that Morden, Psychor and Earth were all working together and Garibaldi having that badge kind of is the, you know, proof in the pudding or whatever. So I think that now that everyone else is aware of that, that this is going to change how they plan their attack or training or or whatever they're going to do, you know, because obviously they knew that the threat was the creepy murder spider ships, but I don't think they were necessarily aware that Earth and Psychor were involved until Garibaldi kind of flashed that to everybody. Well, at least some of them might have known, but everybody wasn't aware. So I feel like this might necessarily might change the way that they go forward with how they approach everything. That was a pretty interesting scene. You know, I wrote a ton of notes on that, like that whole story and the whole thing. Like it was just in the beginning of the show, you saw the headlines about the Senate hearings about the ships. Right. And then this conversation happens and they're like, well, why are they lying about not knowing what they are? And that is even more kind of infuriating, I think, to the war council of like, why the fuck are they lying? And and I think it's because they know that like they have an ulterior motive. And then when they find out Clark wants to get control of this ship to use as a weapon, that's kind of like where shit really hits the fan. Also, how the fuck does Clark think that they're going to control these creepy murder spider ships that have been around before the dawn of time? Who, like who on earth is gonna wrangle this ship and be like, "You're my bitch now"? Like they must be, dude. 
yeah they must be yeah they must be fucking mental because like why do you think you can control that and use that and learn as like as a weapon against first of all against their own race which that's not going to happen and second of all against your own people like this ship has a mind of its own it's it kind of reminds me of the vorlon ship where it's like a living organism but it's a ship and i feel like if it has a a conscious of its own there's no way in hell that anyone is going to control that ship so it just made me laugh a little bit that clark thought that they can get this ship and take it over and like use it because if anything it was going to destroy them and it pissed me off even further that Sheridan and Delenn saved their asses and fucking got rid of the ship that was about to destroy everybody. And then they're like, oh, it was an attack on us and all this bullshit. So the whole thing was a hot ass mess. But I am happy that they made it back. But that whole like endeavor was it was pretty crazy. Well, remember, too, the whole are the how are they crazy enough? Remember going back to that scene where Morden was at Earth with a psychop and the senator. It wasn't Morden who said, you know, we could use the shadows to kind of uh, make this something in case we need it. It was the psychop who said we could use this later. So as much as we know the shadows are manipulating the Centauri and now we know they're manipulating Earth in some extent. Psychor and probably Clark think they're manipulating the shadows and earthlings and everyone else the same way. They all think that they're the head of the spear on this. Mm-hmm. The question is who really is? Uh, arrogance is a real bitch, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Very much so. Emily. So I was thinking about why Garibaldi might not have brought it up earlier. And when you think about it, it sounds ludicrous. Like, oh yeah, I saw that crazy ship and they had it. And look, I found a Psychor badge. Because sometimes the things Garibaldi comes up with might sound a little, <laughs> you know what I mean? So for him to finally have somebody else who was there and as a witness to confirm, look, this isn't just Garibaldi doing some anti psychor bullshit. This is Garibaldi like verifying what the hell was going on. And now we got a real issue. So I think it also helps them understand just how long this process has been going on. If he saw this seven years prior before they knew of any of this. So the history of this is much further back than they initially thought, which means it's going to go a lot deeper than they thought. So yeah, they're the pile of shit they dug into is uh, bigger than they originally anticipated. Real quick, I'm going to go into the Silent Enemies comic book just a little bit more because at this point, everything that's happened in that you guys have seen, but that way you got more of a backfiller on it, is so Garibaldi and Sinclair first come up to the shadow ship as it's uh, you know extracting the other shadow ship. So they see the shadow ship in the air shooting down at the canyon to release the other shadow. So Sinclair and Garibaldi saw that from a distance. They continue on their little expedition and they find a science installation now in the comic book it's actually a really big installation but jms has said the artist kind of went a little bit too far and really it was more like a quonset hut kind of size thing is his words but in there they see another alien life form that seems to be connected to to machines and stuff it almost to me if you've played mass effect 2 the way it's described in the comic and the way it looks in the comic 
it reminds me of the last Reaper you fight in Mass Effects 2, you know, the, the hanging from the ceiling and stuff. Mm-hmm. And what they see is Sinclair and Garibaldi see, um, I, actually, you know what? I think maybe it's just Garibaldi at this point because it's sometime in the comic, I can't remember where, Garibaldi stuns Sinclair because Sinclair doesn't want the Psy Corps to read his mind because of the whole 24-hour thing. So he actually asked Garibaldi to knock him out. So I don't know if Sinclair sees this part or not. But there are humans being put into this alien machine and that's where at the last moment when they before they blow it up we see that talia was one of those people so that's a little bit more background on what garibaldi and sinclair saw on mars justin well and thank you scott for confirming the fact that i can order those issues this week because i'm probably going to be on top of that Um, chronologically my friend let me tell you which books you can read without me yelling at you in darkness find me mm -hmm. treason in harm's way the Price of Peace, the Psychor, and you. So I think I'll enjoy that one. Duet for Human and Narn in C Sharp. <laughs> okay. Oh, Coda for Human and Narn in B Flat. <laughs> okay, hold on. In C Sharp? <laughs> There's a lot of these, actually. Okay. Survival the Hard Way and Silent Enemies. Those are the two Survival. with Garibaldi and Sinclair on Mars. And Garibaldi and Keffer run around escaping centauris yeah one 100 on emily i think she is absolutely right one thing if are we done with mars or can i skip the ganymede yet yep no one's saying no so go for it so i think and maybe one thing that you even alluded to within the comic book is the kind of a little bit of the knowledge we've got on what powers these spider ships with the fact that even they said it consumes living beings where they merge and become part of the ship in order to power it. Whereas we saw when they tried to experiment with a human, stick him inside and see what happens, and then the thing goes batshit crazy. It just brings to me another interesting fact with both that I think JMS has alluded to before, and it's been seen throughout you know, a lot of the storyline, is the light and dark dichotomy between, I guess you would say, the Vorlon and the Shadows, because... It just shows the shadow ships are alive, just like the Vorlon ships are. And the fact that it's, again, the shadow ships are like a dark version of the of the Vorlon ships, whereas the Vorlon ships are alive. They, you know, can power themselves or whatever. But it sounds like the shadow ships have to consume living beings in order to operate at least that's what i kind of pulled from the episode so it was just really interesting to kind of get a little bit more information on how these shadow ships work and the fact that some human who's not quote-unquote as 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 the lens said properly prepared could make the spider ship go batshit crazy and just trying to blow up everything in sight so i thought that was fascinating kevin I feel like we're really defaming those shadow ships. I mean, they seem cute and fun. No, I'm kidding. Um, With all the little tentacles, whatever you want to call them. I, I really thought they did a nice job with the CGI in, in this episode. It w- It's really starting to to show how how good um, a series it is and it's picked up with budget and skill level of the creators. I thought it was really interesting how it was, you know, 
uh, Sheridan's former ship that he ends up up against. Uh, that was an interesting little twist, especially since the the Agamemnon has mostly been a you know a deep um, deep space vessel, not an explorer class ship, but you know out on the rim at least. And now it's back in in uh, Earth space. Um, I don't know if that means anything for the deployments and in, in the uh, the Earth Alliance, but. Yeah, this um, the ultimate scene, the the battle and whatnot is just phenomenal, and it's a lot of fun to watch. Nicole, so at the end of the kind of like battle when they were like at the Agamemnon, I can't say that was when they were wanting them to surrender and they did the the jump. I thought it was kind of interesting how they said that they were the first ones to jump in um uh, open a jump gate in a atmospheric or do an atmospheric jump. What did that mean? Like they were in an atmosphere that wasn't suitable for jumps or I mean, that was cool. Like they were really excited about it, but I just didn't really understand what it meant. It's never happened that he's aware of the jump gates and jumps happen in open space and not in a planet's atmosphere. So they were in like the orbit of the planet where they were actually in the the atmosphere. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were in the atmosphere of Jupiter. They were got it. In one of its spheres, its mesosphere—I don't know. It was gotcha. really common in science fiction that any any warp, hyperspace, hyperdrive, whatever you got going on, you don't do. You know, sometimes even in the solar system, but certainly not in an atmosphere. That's got pretty it. common sci-fi. It used to be Star Trek canon until it wasn't that you couldn't warp inside a right. solar system. Right. I mean, I thought it was really cool. I just wasn't sure what the significance was there and if it was like a large one or if it was like, you know, they were just like, yeah, we did it. What up? Or if it was like, holy shit, we pulled that off and didn't die. Kind Lanier of was pretty sure they were going to die. I mean, the way yeah. he, he you, you, how many times have you ever seen Lanier actually like tell Delenn, your idea is bad? <laughs> and he's like, I, I like the strategic thinking, but we're going to die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a little of both. It seems like depending on the sci-fi, the consequences are either we don't know what that's going to do, so let's not try it. Or like if we jump to light speed in the Earth's atmosphere, we're going to accidentally rip the atmosphere off the entire planet and kill everyone. Well, there's not people on Jupiter. It's fine. The one thing, too, since you mentioned the atmospheric jump, there's a little fun thing. And I was mentioning this to the folks before we started recording is there's one frame when you watch the White Star jump out. That if you look at there's a city like a futuristic city behind the white star for one frame and even though it was only one frame the nerds in the 90s saw it and like started asking jms what's that city what is that did you hide something that we didn't know about and what it was was the same special effects company that was working on this episode was working on a cartoon series called the hypernauts and they decided to jokingly put in a still from their cartoon, thinking no one was going to see it. And so here's JMS's response, and it's so pure JMS, I just have to read it. The executive producer, which JMS is the executive producer, the executive producer thinks he's mistaken, has to be. It must be a series of patterns in the image and look, that look like a city. Being a thorough person, however, the executive producer fires up his copy of the tape, fast forwards to the shot in question, pauses, then advances frame by frame, then stops. The executive producer stares at the screen a very, very long time. Eventually, words form. The executive producer knows that if he posts those words here, not only will they throw him off the system, they will come to his house, burn it down, and sow the ground with its salt. 
the executive producer knows the executive producer knows what the single frame is, knows that it has nothing to do with the show, knows that it's a frame from Hypernauts that somehow crossed into the EFX shot in double exposure via a computer glitch while rendering. No one saw it. No one noticed it until now. Tomorrow morning, the executive producer is going to make a phone call and say all of the words he can't say here. When he is finished, 27 miles of telephone coaxial cable are going to be hung, melted from telephone poles. Shortly thereafter, the executive producer is going to put a gun to his head and blow his brains out in the sure knowledge that if he does not do so, he will most assuredly do it to someone else. The executive producer thanks you for bringing this to his attention and would write further, but is currently voting from a laptop computer on the top of his roof from which he is considering jumping. And the wind up here is causing a line noise. Well, that was a lot. (laughs) JMS wanted to kill somebody after he found out that happened. Fantastic. And it's not like it was like, oh, the DVDs where you can skip ahead frame by frame. No, some son of a bitch recorded this on VHS and started watching it and found it. So I love the Internet. I just love it. I also love the uh, the Henley that uh, Sheridan wears with the four buttons up. I used to have some of those in the 90s. They were comfy shirts. Glad to see 90s fashion is alive and well in 2260. <laughs> yeah, he had some great style. I was like, OK, Sheridan, you got some swag. Now, Justin, I know you mentioned the uh, with a duet that was lovely about the Dylan and Sheridan stuff. But does anyone else want to talk about Dylan and Sheridan in this episode? Nicole, you're the queen of shipping. So what do you? Oh, got? yeah. OK, so first of all, those beds were weird. <laughs> and I was <laughs> laughing when Sheridan was trying to, like, get comfortable. He's like, how do you sleep on this thing? The whole story he told about the rain and his dad, it was very sweet, is very meaningful. And it was just a nice moment. Back when I was a kid preparing for the academy. I'd be up till oh, four or five o'clock in the morning studying. And I'd have maybe two hours to sleep after that, but I was so wound up. I'd just lie there. Same thing happened the night before my final test. I just knew if I didn't get some sleep, I'd, I'd never pass it. And did it begin to rain? But dad, my dad heard me walking around. He knew I couldn't sleep. So he went outside, he got the garden hose and sprayed it. So it came down on the roof, (laughs) just like rain. He stood there making it rain until I fell asleep. I sometimes think he would have stood there for days if he had to. I miss him. And right now, more than anything else in the world, I wish it would rain. And then when she, you know, said whatever she said, and then all of a sudden you hear the sound of rain.
just the smile on his face. And then you saw that they were holding hands and like she held his hand while he fell asleep and listened to the rain. I was like, oh, my God, that is the sweetest thing ever. So I was very, very excited about that whole sequence. Um, They are for sure going to smash. They're going to get married. They're going to have alien human babies like I am on board one billion percent. And just even like earlier in the in the episode when he was sitting in the chair and he was kind of staring off and you could see this look of like just kind of dread and upset on his face. She just comes and puts his hand on her shoulder on his shoulder and he just smiles and she comforts him. And like it it just they're so fucking sweet. It's going to give me a toothache. I just love it so much. Not to feed into your shipping any more than I have to, but there's an author. Also, when they're on the bridge of the White Star, Sheridan says something. It was um, it was something about when he's attacking the shadow ship and he says that he's got a plan. If you watch Mira Furlon as Delenn, look at Sheridan right there. She gives him his her O face. She just like looks at him like she is just in shock and amazement and probably wanting his babies right there. Damn. It's a fun little look. She only gives it for a second. She's just like, oh, Emily, uh, because we haven't talked about it in a while, you still think that Delenn and Sinclair are married. So how do you feel about all this? I mean, I have thoughts. And I think the part that I'm actually struggling with more is it is a very intimate relationship. They do seem very close. But if you also look at how she interacted with um, her friend, Mayanne earlier, there was also a very similar level of intimacy. And it makes me wonder if we view it as like a romantic intimacy, but for them it isn't. And that it's really just how relationships and friendships work. Because I would say even with Lanier, there is a sort of closeness that would probably be pushing the boundaries of what people might consider an appropriate relationship for basically a sub like a subordinate, you know, since he works for. So I'm not sold on them like hooking up, but I do think they have a very close relationship. Justin. Well, while we're on the subject of shipping and smashing, um, <laughs> I am going to bring up momentarily the approaching shipwreck that is Susan Ivanova and Marcus Cole. Um, that scene towards the end that I thought was actually quite humorous, where Marcus brings in this huge organizational chart into Ivanova's quarters about how exactly he finds their place and everything, pinpoints Ivanova as the center of it all, and then somehow includes his parents into it. As I recall, you were somewhat concerned about where I fit in the great organizational scheme of things. So I went to the effort of preparing this chart. Now then, here's you right here at the heart of everything, and why not? And here's me. This is the captain, here's Franklin, here's my mum and dad. They don't actually have anything to do with it, but it's a very good picture of them, don't you think? <laughs> Marcus. I actually think I've come up with a way to explain the organizational structure of Babylon 5 using the Ottoman Empire as a model. I thought that was actually kind of a, a, a quite a humorous scene, but she asks him, as, as annoyed, even in the scene in what was it, Sheridan's office or whatever, where she just gets flies off on him. I don't know where I am in this. I don't know where you are in this. You know, she's ex extremely stressed out and freaking out about the whole mission right now. But then at the end, uh, in the scene in her quarters, where he find, you know, she, she's like, well, what is the point of all this? What are you trying to do? And he's like, well, did it make you laugh? Well, yeah. Okay, job done. And you see the glint in her face about there's something there. I don't know what, 
but it's actually watching those two possibly end up hooking up at some point again like i said it's going to be a gigantic shipwreck because i don't know how this relationship is going to go well but it's going to be entertaining to watch how can you not not love marcus cole that man is just he's just i didn't say you didn't i'm just like how could you not yeah he's just he's he's just marcus cole nicole what what was that emily nothing (laughs) (laughs) nicole I also loved that scene. I thought it was super cute. I definitely think that the tension between them is very real. You can see like as much as she wants to like not like him and she wants to hate him or whatever. He's growing on her. And I definitely think that that moment was kind of a turning point in their relationship. I think she realizes, oh, he's not that bad. And like, it was just really cute that he went through all that effort, got a poster board, made a whole thing, came into her her office or quarters or whatever, and just wanted to make her laugh. I don't really know how you move someone on a space station, but finding poster board and making a cute little thing and making her laugh is a pretty good start. So I thought that was really sweet. And something Emily said that kind of made me think of it is that how Delenn is very close to different people and has that nurturing I definitely see like she is a nurturer by nature and she's very like affectionate. I'm I'm like that too, though. But like, I think it's different between her and Sheridan, just the way they look at each other, the way they are like, yeah, she is kind of borderline with Lanier and like affectionate. And she's like that with her friend. And I see what you're saying, Emily, but I just think, and maybe this is the hopeless romantic in me, but I just think there's there's more between her and Sheridan. Like she doesn't hold everyone's hand. She doesn't ask what they need and then make it appear out of the sound of air, of the air. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's like she's nurturing and caring and affectionate, but it's to the next level with him. So I, I just, I don't know. I always think a grand gesture is always good. And it's not kissing with your eyes open, but what happened on this episode? Just remember everyone that the way to a woman's heart is bacon and eggs and arts and crafts. That's the way to a woman's heart. Emily, real quick, because I love the look that she gives. I actually found the scene. So here is Mira's O face to Sheridan. Captain, its weapons are at full strength. If it hits us dead on, we cannot survive the blast. It's all worried. All right. Thanks for doing what I needed to do. I got a man enough to follow us. Redirect power to engines. Come about. Of course. We're screwed. We're screwed. We're screwed. We're going inside. If we can't outfight it, let's hope we can outthink it. And she wants his babies right there. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> that, that is Mira's O face right she there. She just creamed her pants on that scene. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Looked at Definitely. that Henley jacket and it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to go. <laughs> Emily, what do you got? Abercrombie and Fitch much? <laughs> Okay, first off, that shirt is phenomenal, and we definitely need to bring those back just as a classic style. I think I have one in my closet right now. I know my son has one, or a few. Anyway, so the thing about Marcus walking around with a chart, that just doesn't seem like a smart idea. You make this chart showing how everyone's connected when night watches around, and you're just walk around. Yeah, you better space that. Thank you. On, dude. He's supposed to be like a ranger and all stealth and shit, and you're gonna walk around with fucking evidence. Thank you. See, this is why Nicole and I would never be able to make a revolution happen. No, because we're too busy, like going, "Oh, that's cute," and you're like, "You're all gonna fucking die." Where is your sense of romance, Mike and Emily? Come on. Okay, so So I guess this is the point where he comes first. (laughs) <laughs> with these Nazis on board, all right? 
I guess this is the point where I feel like I need to defend my initial opinion of this episode, and that is, I was just taken out of it by some of the dumb shit that they did. <laughs> and this is one of those things, as was them having this whole elaborate plan about how they were going to cover for Sheridan's absence for four days, except for having somebody actually use his computer for four days. Oops. And technically it was his door, not his computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was a little Maybe he okay. was checking up with Dylan for four days. Just spank banking it for four days. That's not gonna look good to to night watch either. He's having another session with Kosh in Brown Sector. <laughs> listen, listen, been a, a four day monk chant session. Yeah, I don't know. Some of those little things took me out of it. And I'm sorry, but I thought the whole battle scene between Sheridan, the White Star, and the Shadow Ship was kind of too much of a rehash of his battle with shadow ship in hyperspace before where their goal was to just outrun it and then do something quasi suicidal and hope it worked out well and i think that's the point though mike and i hear what you're saying i get it the point is they're outgunned there, there's no way these guys can take out a shadow vessel by themselves the narn cynical battle cruisers at one and didn't take it out fully so uh that's i think that's there's no way that they can actually like go toe-to-toe -to -toe with these guys the only reason why they were able to hurt this one is because it was legitimately crazy when they were attacking it yeah no like i said and, and and i get it and that's why i don't rate this episode lower i don't necessarily find anything hugely at fault with this episode i just found it difficult to get as excited about it as others did i'm still giggling over caution from sector because <laughs> gregorian chants all over the place <laughs> that is not where i took it Where's the, Enya when you need her <laughs> all i can think of right now is every party has a poopa and it's you mike <laughs> I'm just thinking the Nightwatch guys are like, where has Sheridan been? And he comes stumbling back out of Brown Sector covered in shit head to toe. He's like, fucking cow. That was a party. <laughs> Ironically, there's an episode like that coming up in this season. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Oh, God. All right. It Legitimately. And it's going to be kind of a big one for us. I'm just going to say. It's going to be a big episode when we get a there. A big shit episode. I just want you all to remember <laughs> the, idea of, the idea of a character stumbling out of a part of the station at the last minute. Just honestly okay, honestly though that's that just... been big before and they haven't been so i'm not sure trust your judgment on that i said it's <laughs> an episode for us that's Emily, what used to me the whole the whole thing of the ace ventura scene of do not go in I was there. Of the same <laughs> all of our all of our listeners just collectively shouted out the episode name everyone you're right that's the one i'm referring i was gonna to. say look man every place every place has a sabaros but not everybody goes there <laughs> <laughs> on that note Emily, what do you have shit what was i gonna say <laughs> sorry i got distracted by the whole kosh brown sector thing oh it was back to dylan and sheridan i guess i refuse to accept them as any sort of couple because it would be based on trauma bonding from the jack and jack the river episode where some of that was forced and she also knows that they're going into a really bad situation that's going to get really dangerous and they're likely both going to die. So I I just feel like she's going to be more compassionate and gentle with him, knowing what's ahead to create like a solid foundation other than the trauma bond of trust. Like now he knows she's got his back. 
so they can um, face whatever they're going to have to face together. But I could just be in complete denial because she's still married to Sinclair in my head. He ate the tomatoes. He ate them. And that, I'm telling you, that was erotic. <laughs> it was absolutely erotic. I'm not arguing with you on that. I just don't know if it was a marriage scene. It was, it was disturbing. <laughs> we've all come to the conclusion over the past year or so we've been doing this, that Babylon 5 is kind of a horny show. It really is. It's actually kind of calmed down a little bit. We don't talk about lists anymore and things like that. But Erotic tomatoes. The way she, the way they ate it is the whole thing she's going for. Yeah, that was very- Eat my okay, tomato, well, how did, Jeffrey. How did you feel Eat about it. the scene in Lord of the Rings between Denethor and Mary? I don't know who Denethor and Mary. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know Lord of the Rings, but I don't know any of their goddamn names. I know Frodo. And Sam first, I'm or, leaving. Or the entire first season of Game of Thrones. <laughs> I got into a rant on Game of Thrones, and when I did my first Mass Effect video, I'm not going to do another one of those. I think the last thing that we haven't really hit on too much is another ship that needs to happen, and that's Garibaldi and Jakar. So who wants to talk about that? Um, Jakar seemed to be in a surprisingly good mood for, you know, being in B5 jail. I mean, quite frankly, if somebody locked me in a room away from all of the people that caused me grief for six weeks, I'd be okay with it too. What are you trying to say, Mike? What are you trying to say? Uh, what, is, what is understood doesn't to need say. to be said. You're, Mike's <laughs> going to take a little bit of a hiatus. He'll be back around episode 20 of the season. Kevin, what do you got? I just think that was a that was a great scene between the two of them. I mean, Garibaldi clearly is, you know, uh, showing some concern and wanting to make sure that his his spirits are up and you know checking on him and jakar seems touched that he would do such a thing and um seems like the two of them are you know closer than they've ever been not to say that they're like best buddies or anything but that they certainly have more of a bond and i thought the the fact that he was you know, writing, you know, writing a book about all of his experiences uh, is is a pretty cool thing to be doing while he's in in jail for what was it, eight weeks, I think. And the, the whole singing thing was very humorous. I that that was one of the things in the episode that I I, I enjoyed the most, other than the the Marcus and and Ivanova stuff, because I thought the I thought the joke landed very well and wasn't overdone. Remember the petition. Remember it. Justin. I mean, yeah, definitely, definitely a good scene. It was kind of very interesting timing for me because I just finished listening to Nelson Mandela's autobiography and then watching this scene totally gave me Mandela vibes. And that's also around the same time in history where Mandela was, I think, still imprisoned and you started to see kind of the uprise against apartheid and stuff like that in South Africa. So I thought that him kind of being portrayed in this scene as more of a political prisoner or kind of acting more as a political prisoner um, than anything else was actually extremely interesting. And I give Garibaldi credit for trying to read Darn and trying to, you know, he's he's sticking with it. He's trying to figure out the book of Jaquan and even, uh, you know, even Jakar is saying, you know, no, you you can't read a, a translated version of it, read it in the original, and that's it. So there's a lot of information that I think that Garibaldi is going to be able to come up with later on that's going to help out with the war against the shadows. But um, I also think it's very interesting that the uh, that, that the Narn write from right from right to left. I noticed that as well. 
little behind the scenes thing. They actually filmed that wrong because the whole point was the Narn do right, right to left, but they filmed Andreas Katsula's writing left to right. So they flipped the frame. So they just reversed it. Yep. Yeah. So if you look at it, it looks like it's flipped and it's because they intentionally flipped it to make the writing work for what Narn should be. Mike. Yeah, so I mean, of this episode that I kind of felt lukewarm about, this is absolutely my favorite scene. No surprise, because I'm a big Jakar fan. And the thing, though, besides the clever dialogue and writing between us, is is the thing that I really love about this is not only does Garibaldi show multiple levels of connection towards uh, connection, affection, concern, care, whatever you want to call it, towards Jakar, and that he's revealed that he's very actively learning Narn and trying to read the book of Jaquan per Jakar's request and that he checked on, you know, this guy to see if how he was doing in his confinement, which he did not need to do. But I guess what I like about this so much is because now what we're seeing is that Mr. Garibaldi used to have, besides this connection to the other B5 staff, his main connection to other people has been, well, I guess I shouldn't say that. I, I was going to say his main connection to other people. He, he does associate with like we've seen him with Lanier and some others, but he used to have this really close kind of friendship with uh, Lando. And now you're seeing that that is no longer the case. And they've even referenced it in previous episodes where Lando has said that he feels like he's lost his friend. Well, now we've seen Garibaldi shift from Lando to Jakar as kind of like this this close bond friendship. And I think that's kind of the whole cyclical nature of B5 that, that we see over and over that I always get really jazzed about because I just think that's really, really beautiful writing and in, in how characters turn. And, and as well, you can imagine that in the, in the beginning of the series when Garibaldi, or not Garibaldi, when Jakar was the, you know, must, mustache twirling villain that he probably used to butt heads with, with you know, uh, the most with this guy. And so they've really done a, a role reversal now or a, a pivot. Um, so I just really enjoyed that aspect of it. Nicole. One thing too, just a very small thing I noticed about the scene with Garibaldi and Jakar that I thought was really sweet is that when Garibaldi left and kind of reminded him of the joke and he walked out, he just had this like smile on his face and you could see that it meant so much to him. And I just thought that was really heartwarming. And like, yeah, he's sitting in a cell and he's, you know, going through this. But I think he felt like cared for and validated at that moment. Also, too, I really liked his whole dialogue about how you can't hide from yourself in the silence. And you're kind of forced to face your demons and like things that are going on in your in your life. Um, so I thought that was really cool, too. And I don't know, a good reminder for everybody to, you know, kind of try to cut out distractions and focus on yourself sometimes. Okay, let's go ahead and move into questions, predictions. For those of you who are new to us, we have our newbies ask any lingering questions they may have because they have not watched any episode past messages from Earth. And then we ask them to give us any predictions they have of what could happen next. So let's go to Nicole first. Questions and predictions. Really, my only questions are what's going to happen now after this mission that they went on? Because you know, they said, oh, we got away with it. Garibaldi's like, well, no good, good D goes unpunished and they got away with it for now. So is there going to be any consequences? Are they going to find out it was them? Uh, what's going to happen with that? And then another question is, what's Zach going to do? Is he going to quit the Night Watch or is he going to turn on the Night Watch? Because I don't think he is going to turn on Garibaldi and crew. And then prediction wise, I think that it's just going to continue to escalate. And I think it's going to become a real problem with the Night Watch and Sheridan. I think they're going to clash and I think they're going to lose against Sheridan. 
And Emily, questions, predictions? Um, uh, no, nothing. Well, <laughs> this is going to be a fun beyond the rim. Justin, questions, predictions? Main question, because uh, a couple of them got answered kind of over the course of the discussion. How many more buried-ass spider ships are we going to run into? You know, and the fact that they can wake these damn things up after a thousand years scares the bejesus out of me. So I'm very curious to see if any... How many more have been discovered, where they are, and how many humans get sacrificed to wake these damn things up. So then some predictions. And I'm going to throw Zach into prediction territory because I really think at this point he is going to be, and I kind of think that maybe we're all, or a lot of us newbies are kind of at the same mind, that he's going to end up becoming a spy for the B-5 command staff. And he's going to be feeding a lot of false information uh, to Nightwatch, which is definitely something that I'm looking forward to. They made a mention about how in the next couple months, they're going to start making big rounds of arrests of senators and people that they think is disloyal to the Earth government. And I still think Haig is going to be one of those. We're going to lose Haig. And we're going to lose some of the people that Sheridan has been working with in that inner kind of Earth Alliance conspiracy. And then... I think that at this point, Sheridan's going to be a little bit emboldened by this success against the spider ship, and he's going to run some more missions to try and disrupt what's going on with Earth, especially since since the declaration of martial law within the Earth Dome. That's not going to set well with him, and he's going to do everything that he can to try and disrupt that. Okay, and with that, we'll go ahead and let our newbies leave for this week. For those of you who want to hear the answers to these questions and predictions, and probably a little bit more talk about this episode, because there's some stuff in here that the newbies didn't bring up that we're probably going to want to talk about, stick around after the credits, and we'll do just that. And then next week, we will be here to talk about Point of No Return, which is the name of the season. So if you're playing with your scorecards, you remember usually the name of the season episode. It's one you probably should watch. So I'm looking forward to having that conversation with these guys next week as we look at Point of No Return. You, What you can do until then is make sure to like, subscribe, follow. Go join us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you're listening to the audio podcast, check out our YouTube. If you're on our YouTube, check out our audio podcast. And again, please leave a review. Those really do help the show grow. And finally, as I mentioned at the top of the show, only about half of you are subscribed. So hit that subscribe button in either Apple, Spotify, Podchaser, whatever, and also on YouTube to hit that subscribe button. So until next week, when we talk Point of No Return, I've been Scott, and with me has been... Justin. Mike. Emily. Kevin. And Nicole. Thank you for listening to Gray 17, a Babylon 5 podcast. You can find all the places to listen to and watch this podcast at anchor.fm slash gray17podcast or youtube.com at gray17podcast. We want to hear from you, so join the conversation at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, or Patreon. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review where you are listening to or watching this podcast. Gray 17 is not affiliated with, and the podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by Warner Brothers or any other owners of the Babylon 5 copyright. All clips included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. The opening and closing themes are available from Falling Matter, on YouTube. And what's out there? The rim. And beyond that?
the truth. Hey everybody, it's Scott. We actually were able to get Blake back on after the show to do the Beyond the Rim. So when you hear Blake magically appear, that's why. On with the show. Welcome back to Beyond the Rim. Again, final warning, if you have not watched past Messages from Earth, this is a spoiler section. You should probably see yourself out the door. For the rest of you, we're going to dive into the questions and predictions from our newbies. And again, a reminder, they have not watched the other two parts of this trilogy, Point of No Return and Severed Dreams. They will watch those here in the coming weeks. So we're just going to be talking about their questions from this episode. And guys, the first questions we have is, What's going to happen after this mission to destroy the shadow ship and now that the the White Star has been spotted near Jupiter? <laughs> I was going to say that's well, a pretty open-ended question. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> well, in short, shit goes down. <laughs> well, I was going to say, to quote Justin, shit escalates. Yes, yeah. very much so. <laughs> I will say the, the, the whole, like, the White Star has now been seen isn't that big of an issue in a couple episodes because... They're going to basically know that the Mimbari are involved in supporting B5 after Severed Dreams. Yeah. Uh, but it is the first time the Shadows know of the White Star, which is going to be a thing. Well, and I would actually say it's a little bit bigger because... So you've got this, at least to Earth at this point, unknown ship that jumps into Earth space. It kind of sets up the first little example of playing into Clark's whole message about you know people selling out earth to aliens mm -hmm. so you've got this alien ship jumping in that they're blaming for tearing up shit at earth yeah but, and you know in, in retrospect there there wasn't a choice i mean there wasn't like an, any any other ship they could have taken there wasn't any other way they could have really done this mission they had to do it nope. um so it's just a necessary situation where they are going to find out that the Minbari are behind the the White Stars, but you know it's it's actually not going to matter for for a while <laughs> that that the Minbari have the the uh, White Stars you know under the control of mostly the uh, the religious caste because uh, it's going to be used in the Shadow War and it's not really going to come up in the the Earth Civil War for a while. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, and that was Sheridan's point, too. You've got this tool. When are you going to decide to use it? Now is the time. So they did. So going back over to B5, what's Zach going to do now that Nightwatch is starting to, it's shenanigans? Is he going to quit Nightwatch or is he going to turn on the Nightwatch or what is he going to do? Well, going along with some of our, you know, predictions that we've had previous episodes and this one, you know, we've had a couple people, you know, Zach's going to keep with Nightwatch. We've had, you know, Zach's going to turn on the Nightwatch. Um, and of course, in the next episode, he's going to become a uh, key player in the uh, turning on Nightwatch and getting rid of them. Because mm -hmm. without him, it would have been a lot more difficult to do that. I love that these guys are experiencing these three episodes week to week because, uh, you know, most people, when they're doing a rewatch, they're going to plow through these three and four episodes with Ceremonies of Light and Dark. And it's great that these guys have to ruminate at least for a little bit on each one of these. It's it's fun to watch. I agree with that completely. I, I would I would say that doing it that way 
is almost a mistake because you really don't dive deep into all three of the episodes separately and you don't really get a, a great, uh, great look at them all the time. I mean, there's so much meat here with these three episodes. And I'm also glad, Scott, that you you suggested that we not tell them that it was a trilogy because yeah. with with that, uh, we got we got a couple interesting comments here and there and they didn't really realize exactly what was coming, even though we had told them that uh, that, you know, Severed Dreams is a pretty big episode. But um, I'm really glad for how to send it up. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can say, honestly, I, I've probably rewatched the series. I've definitely rewatched the series, the least of the four of us here. And, um, and, 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 and <laughs> what am I trying to say? And I'm the least expert among us about this, but this was the first time in my rewatch of P5 where I finished this episode and I really did have to fight the urge to continue. <laughs> um, because mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's just, it's very good. It's such a, a great buildup episode. Yeah, I couldn't stop myself. I had to, I plowed right through all three of them. I tried, yeah. I really did, but. Sure you did, sure you tried. <laughs> I have been the I, one. I did not hit the automatically skip to next episode button. I let it count down. That was my trying. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm proud of you. Now, I'm the one who has gone out of their way to not watch ahead. I'm trying to stay with the newbies, but it was the same idea. It's It's very hard to finish this episode and not dive into the whole thing, but we're almost there. So speaking of buried and diving in, how many more buried shadow ships are out there? Where are they? We really don't know. We don't know. But we do know that the shadows have left their tech, their allies, and their ships all over the galaxy waiting to be reawakened. So I'm sure there's more of them, but they don't really become too much of a plot point in terms of the actual ships, aside from the two that we hear about around Earth. Is there really ever any explanation given for why these ships are buried? We have two of them in the Earth system and at least two of them. Uh, it's it's kind of unclear to me in watching this whether they're damaged or laying dormant or what exactly. Some of the extended canon with the novels gets into that. As far as the backstory, some, they don't really get into it in the show. The only time this ever gets brought up again in the show is in the episode later this season, Zaha Doom. Uh, they're talking and they're discussing the Icarus mission. And what it comes out is they put a tracking device on the ship on Mars and they tracked it back to Zaha Doom, which is what led to the Icarus mission uh, with uh, Sheridan's wife on it. So they, they covered that. But yeah, as far as why these ships are there, how they ended up stuck there, that they don't really get into that in the show itself. Yeah, from what I understand, and part of it is just assumptions, is they're just laying their ships all over the place so they're ready for the next time they wake up. Well, I kind of wondered that too, if they were just, you know, if that's where they had gone to ground to try to hide and be ready for next time. But it definitely also felt like there was more to it because the ship didn't just wake itself up and fly away. It seemed as though it, you know, needed a a sacrifice. Yeah. Well, that's our next question too, is how many humans get sacrificed to wake up these shadows. But I think it's all kind of part of the plan is they, they leave this tech behind. They wait for the races to advance enough to where they can play with it and to be told to play with it. Cause I'm sure there are shadow agents like saying, Hey, here's how you get these ships to run. So I think it's all kind of built into their cycle of screwing with the other races. Yeah, the shadow um, agents are playing the ultimate geocaching game. Pretty so. much, yeah. 
yeah. at the same time too, look at how much crap does the U.S. military have strewn about the deserts of the Middle East because we just <laughs> left it there. Mm-hmm. Well, and to that that next question is how many humans could sacrifice? We really don't know for sure, but we find out that both the shadows and Earth look at these folks as just cannon fodder and we'll see ships of people frozen and just being re- ready to be used on shadow ships so the, the number is fairly high okay let's dive into predictions next we have Nightwatch is going to continue to be a problem until sheridan ends the problem yeah <laughs> nailed it it's almost like they watched ahead. No. So going a little deeper into that, Zach is going to turn into a spy against the Night Watch. I can honestly tell you that I forgot that that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's not... I wouldn't... I think he was thinking more long-term, but really it is Zach's given an ultimatum and he decides to pick a side and he picks the right side. So and he obviously in picking a side, he does go in and gets the Night Watch folks to um, uh, go where they probably shouldn't have gone. But it's one it's a one and done rather than like a long-term espionage event. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, it's kind of funny because I think we've maybe we've gaslit the whole crew at this point by preaching about how this is such a serialized show with long running plot threads and so nobody's nobody is prepared when something actually comes to a conclusion especially quickly yeah 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 yeah. i don't know it could have been fun to see you know him be a spy for a little while longer but i think the ending of the night watch uh storyline ended at a good time I, you know, it, it certainly couldn't have gone further than it did. Uh, so, you know, whether Zach was, you know, a spy for longer, I suppose could have happened. And that could have been interesting, but it didn't, <laughs> I don't didn't think, work out that way. I don't think Zach could have been a spy for longer. He's pretty probably terrible. Not. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. It would have Although, gone way worse. Academy Award to him for, you know, for later on, which we'll talk about when we get to that episode, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, no. say I do love the scene in the next episode though, where he goes to open his quarters door, sees everybody in there, and just Sheridan behind him. Yeah, get in. <laughs> we, we have I, to- I would still like to have seen inside that room, but <laughs> so keeping going on this, Haig and other conspirators are going to get arrested by Earth. Nope, he's going to get booked on DS9 and killed off screen. <laughs> <laughs> And really, uh, we don't see mass arrests because by the time, and again, it's for us, it's next episode, but the newbies don't know this yet. Uh, we see that the uh, they go way past arrests real quick. As soon as people start turning, the, the guns come out, both the ship guns and the handheld guns. Yeah. So, Although they do allude to the fact that there were quite a few people charged with treason. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming they don't wind up in prison mostly. They get probably not. No. We, I mean, we do see how interrogations work here later on, but I'm gonna guess most of those folks are, you know, showing the door pretty quickly. Yeah, or the airlock. The same idea. <laughs> and finally, Sheridan is going to run more missions to disrupt what is going on, on Earth now that he's had a success. He will do everything he can to help Earth. You know, going back to the gaslighting, Mike, these guys think this is going to be a longer term thing where, in fact, it's going to turn on a dime here pretty darn quick. There won't be any more espionage on Earth because we're not going to be a part of Earth that long. Well, and I mean, later when they get done with Shadow War, yeah, they're going to go deal with Earth, but... It's still not disruption at that point. It's no. all war. Yeah. yeah. 
anything else you guys want to talk about with this episode? I don't think so. I think we're going to have more to say in in the next two than we are about this one. But I think so. This is uh this is the opening salvo of uh the uh, the appetizer, the yes. amuse bouche. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, let's wait for the main course to show up next week. Uh, I've been Scott, and with me has been Blake, Mike, and Kevin. And we'll be back next week to talk about Point of No Return. Until then, make sure you hit like, subscribe, the notify button if you're watching on YouTube. And then if you can, please do leave a review. They really do help us. We've gotten a lot of reviews here in the past few weeks, and they're really helping to grow the show. So please keep doing that. And again, if you can, we do have our Patreon. It is having a lively discussion in both the B5 non-spoiler section of our Discord, as well as our B5 Beyond the Rim uh, discussion on Discord. And you can get into that Discord with any donation on the Patreon. And if you can go all the way, we do have our great council, and those producers are listed down below. So thanks again, everybody. We will see you on the social medias until we talk next week with Point of No Return. Right now, more than anything else in the world, I wish it would rain. Let it rain.